This lecture was brought to you by Hearing the Voice. It was recorded on the 11th of February 2016 and features Dr. Sam Wilkinson on explanation and explanatory power in psychiatry, the case of voice hearing. If you'd like to find out more about our research into voice hearing or simply keep in touch with us on a more regular basis, you can visit our website, hearingthevoice.org, or tweet us at hearingvoice. I, I struggled with this talk because um, not so much in terms of the, the arguments or the content, but more of how to pitch it. Um, because philosophy of science is a very, um, is a very closed world and um, the concerns and debates in philosophy of science uh, are very closed. So what I've tried to do here is to try and take what I think for, for independent reasons within the philosophy of science is a pretty good account of explanation um, and try and glean some of <coughs> the consequences of that for our understanding of, uh, of voice hearing. Um, but I think it's also applicable to, to, to all areas um, of science, uh, so including um, um, physics, biology, chemistry, and um, other areas of psychiatric research. Okay, so um, the aim of the talk is as follows. Um, I'm not going to argue for my favorite account of explanation, because um, I, think, I think you would, um, you would potentially find that a bit, a bit boring, and, and also I might lose you along the way. I don't mean that in, in, um, in um, I, I, I don't mean that in an offensive way. I, I just mean that it's, it, it does get very um, debates about what explanation is in philosophy of science get very, very technical. Um, so what I'm actually going to do is just present my favorite view of explanation as clearly as I can. Um, and then show the different implications that it has for the question of what makes an explanation better or worse. <clears throat> and that, that property of an explanation that makes it better or worse, I call explanatory power. So um, if you have two explanations and explanation A is better than explanatory that then explanation B, then you'd say that explanation A has more explanatory power. Okay, and then I'm going to show implications that this has for explanations of voice hearing. So what's one slightly peculiar feature of this talk is that when I go on to talk about explanations of voice hearing, um, I'm not going to be interested in whether the explanations uh, are accurate or true. Um, I'm going to be bracketing that question and looking at whether different explanations, if they were true, would be explanatory. Right. Okay, so here's the structure of the talk. I'm going to present different views on the ontology of explanation. <coughs> so namely, what explanation is taken to be. Um, and then I'm going to present a dichotomy between pragmatic and non-pragmatic approaches uh, to explanation in philosophy of science. Then I'm going to introduce um, 
the, the centerpiece of the talk, in a sense, which is my account of explanation that I call interrogative pragmatism. Um, and then I'm going to address something that all accounts of explanation need to address, namely the question of explanation and explanatory power. Namely, what makes something an explanation as opposed to not an explanation? And what makes something that is an explanation a good explanation as opposed to a bad explanation? Okay. And then I'm going to move on to some illustrations from voice hearing. <clears throat> okay, so different views on the ontology of explanation. So I think there are three families of views concerning the nature, the ontology of explanation in philosophy of science. And they are logical, ontic, and communicative. Um, and my favorite view uh, is a subspecies of communicative view. Okay, so what do these mean? Well, one way of thinking about this uh, is to think to yourself, well, with the schema X explains Y, what kinds of thing are the values of X and Y? And depending on your answer to that question, you get different views concerning the ontology of explanation. So I'm going to run through the three, the three families of views. So the first, and it's also temporarily first, <coughs> um, in, in, in the history of philosophy of science, um, is, uh, is the logical view of explanation, according to which logically related propositions are the values of X and Y. Um, and in particular, an explanandum is a proposition that follows deductively from an explanand. So um, Hempel's version of this, which was the first version, is the covering law model. So in looking for explanations, what you're trying to do is you're trying to find a covering law. Um, so this being philosophy of science, it doesn't matter that, it, that the examples are any good, it just matters that they illustrate the abstract structure. So here's an example. Premise one, things with mass fall to the ground when dropped. Premise two, this apple is a thing with mass. Conclusion, therefore, this apple will fall to the ground when dropped. Okay. Um, and what you've got is, in premise one, you've got uh, the covering law, which is a, a kind of law of nature, a, a very general claim. Things with mass fall to the ground when dropped. Okay. Now, obviously, this is... Um, this is an explanation um, within a very, um, with a very naive theory of physical objects underpinning it, but um, the point is, is that um, it's, it's logically valid. <coughs> okay. And consequences of a logical view um, are that scientific and ordinary explanations, everyday explanations, so the sorts of explanations where you, 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 you ask your friend to explain to you why he did something or, or something like that. Um, they're profoundly different in nature. Um, and that's because the things that we call explanations in daily life uh, never, or at best extremely rarely, pick out logically related propositions. Um, and another consequence is that explanations are objectively out there to be discovered. <clears throat> And according to many theorists, as we saw, according to Hempel, 
The aim is to unearth the laws of nature. Um, so just, just to clarify, just because you might think to yourself, well, this is a, this is a, this is a completely crazy view. It's, it's, it's important to clarify that this characterization is not is prescriptive rather than descriptive. Um, it's not interested in capturing how we use the word explain, uh, and it's not interested even in capturing what scientists are actually engaged in doing when they explain things. Um, in fact, it aims to tell us what something ought to be if it is to count as an explanation in this very refined and ideal sense. Okay, <clears throat> so the second family of views about the ontology of explanation, we might call them um, ontic views. So according to ontic views, concrete events are the values of X and Y. Um, now, I think ontic views are by far the most popular at the moment um, in philosophy of science. And in particular, um, these are views that think that causes explain their effects. Uh, and in particular, um, if you um, isolate particular mechanisms. So mechanistic explanation is very, very popular in, in all sorts of areas of science. Um, so an example of this, again, I'm taking a really, a really mundane example. The presence of fire explains the presence of smoke. Okay. Okay, that would be a causal explanation, which is a very coarse-grained version of a mechanistic explanation, which is more fine-grained. Um, so, just to elaborate a little bit on that, you might ask yourself, well, um, I want to explain why there's a, a hole in the ozone layer, and a causal explanation will say it's because there are CFCs, right? So there you've just said, well, there's this cause, and that cause explains the effect. And a mechanistic explanation will say, will go into some detail about uh, the effect of free radicals on the ozone layer and, and all that sort of stuff. Okay, so consequences of the ontic view, they look a lot like the consequences of a logical view. So again, scientific and ordinary ex explanations are very different in nature. <coughs> and Again, explanations are out there to be unearthed. Um, but in this case, you find a particular event of interest and you unearth the explanation of that event, namely its cause or causes, or on some accounts, mechanisms. Now, the third family of views, the, uh, the, the, f the third family of views about the ontology of explanation um, is the communicative view. So according to the communicative view, uh, communicative acts are the values of X and Y. So an explanation is a communicative act, and in particular, it's a good answer to an explanation-demanding question, what I call an E-question. Um, I call that an E-question because there are tons of other questions that aren't E-questions. Okay. And communicative acts are heavily dependent on a number of contextual factors. <clears throat> and these include, among other things, the informational state, the conceptual limitations and explanatory concerns of the consumer of the explanation. Okay, and it's important to note that the consumer of the explanation is not necessarily an individual. Um, it can be a group, so it can be the scientific community or it can be the general public. 
and it can also be oneself. Okay. So consequences of a communicative view look very different to consequences of um, logical and ontic views. Um, first of all, scientific and ordinary explanations are essentially the same kind of thing. Um, in every day, you ask questions and you get answers, and the same applies uh, to scientific explanation. <clears throat> it's just that with scientific explanation, the context, the conversational context, is much more regimented. Uh, so, for example, the explanatory concerns are regimented and shared across the scientific community. Um, secondly, explanations, since they're the products of communicative acts, aren't unearthed, but carefully expressed. And they're answerable to how things stand in the world, but they need to be selective and comprehensible to the demander of the explanation. And the third point, which goes against the other two views, is that explanations simply do not exist in a possible world devoid of inquiring beings that demand and give explanations. Furthermore, these explanations are demanded within a wider pragmatic context, whether it is everyday life, the court of law, the lab, or the clinic. So, after the way I've presented that, you might think to yourself, well, communicative accounts are obviously right, right? Wrong. Okay. Um, they're very unpopular in philosophy of science. Okay, so here's just, here's one quote. <clears throat> I've got a number of quotes, and the, and the best quotes are the ones where you think to yourself, I can't believe somebody actually put this on paper, but I'm so glad that they did. Um, this isn't one of them, but the next one is. <clears throat> okay. So here's Wesley Salmon, big, big name in philosophy of science. The linguistic entities that are called explanations are statements reporting the actual explanation. Explanations in this view, in Wesley Salmon's view, are fully objective and where explanations of non-human facts are concerned, they exist whether or not anyone ever discovers or describes them. Explanations are not epistemically relativized nor outside the realm of human psychology do they have psychological components, nor do they have pragmatic dimensions. Okay, and this is my, my emphasis. <clears throat> and here's another really recent um, quote from uh, Carl Craver, who's big in philosophy of science and also big in philosophy of psychology and neuroscience. He says, clearly people often accept as explanations a great many things that they should reject as such. And people in different cultures might have different criteria for accepting or rejecting explanations. <clears throat> These facts, if they are facts, would be fascinating to anthropologists, psychologists, and sociologists, but they are not relevant to the philosophical problem of stating when a scientific explanation ought to be accepted as such. Wow, um, would be fascinating to, to, those, to those poor anthropologists and psychologists and sociologists who are merely engaged in a lesser enterprise. <laughs> so why would, why would anyone think what these people think? It seems partly a matter of disciplinary turf. 
Um, especially that, that quote from, from Carl Craver, you see that he's saying, well, we need to delineate what's properly philosophical. And um, if what we're interested in is um, what different, um, how different contexts can make people accept different explanations as good or bad, then what we're engaged in there is sociology of science or anthropology of science, but not philosophy of science. And I think in a related vein, <clears throat> I think he has an optimism that I don't share about our capacity to delineate a philosophical account of when a scientific explanation ought to be accepted. Okay. And it seems that, so at the beginning, he says, clearly people often accept as explanations a great many things that they should reject as such. So in a sense, he's saying, well, there's the, there's the practice of requesting and giving explanations. Um, and that's one thing. And it's likely to just be really, really bad in comparison to to, to what explanation really is. Um, and so he seems to think that, um, that a communicative view will be tracking that practice of giving and receiving explanation. Um, and that as a result, it will have a kind of anything goes approach, right? So what will count as a good explanation is whatever a particular um, community will count as a good explanation. <clears throat> and I think that's a very misguided fear. I think it completely misunderstands any decent version of the communicative view. And it's worth remembering that, if anything, an ontic approach is far more liberal about what counts as an explanation, because an explanation doesn't even have to be understood or doesn't even have to be understandable in order to count as an explanation. Remember, they're all there, they're all out there in the world, and, and whether or not we, we discover them. Okay. Um, but in any case, I think that the, the disagreements that I have um, with these theorists runs very, very deep indeed. Um, okay. So, on to the second section. So, so pragmatic approaches to explanation in philosophy of science. Okay, so pragmatic approaches to explanation. <clears throat> so this is, so we're no longer, we've moved from the ontology of, of explanation, so what explanations actually are, um, to particular features of explanations. Okay, so an approach to explanation is pragmatic to the extent that it takes explanation to involve irreducible reference to people involved and to the context in which explanations occur. So the irreducible there is very important because all theorists agree that there are pragmatic elements to linguistic acts of explaining. Um, it's just that non-pragmatic theorists uh, like most logical and ontic theorists, <clears throat> they just believe that there is a non-pragmatic core to explanation, 
and that characterizing that is the job of philosophy of science. Okay. Now, you might be thinking, so what has the pragmatic, non-pragmatic approach got to do with the logical, ontic, and communicative views about the ontology of explanation? And the relationship is roughly this, that logical and ontic accounts tend to be non-pragmatic, but they don't have to be, as we're about to see. Whereas communicative accounts are always pragmatic, they're bound to be pragmatic, because communication is between agents and it occurs in a context. Okay. So in an earlier talk, I actually collapsed the pragmatic, non-pragmatic stuff with the stuff on, on, uh, on the ontology of explanation, mainly for simplicity. So, what I, in, so I called the communicative accounts of the ontology of explanation, I called them just pragmatic accounts. Um, but, but that was not strictly accurate because although all communicative accounts are pragmatic, not all pragmatic accounts are communicative. Okay, so two existing pragmatic views. Um, you've got Baz van Frassen, um, who wrote The Scientific Image in, in 1980, uh, and uh, Peter Ackenstein, who wrote The Nature of Explanation in 1983. Now, they're the two sort of towering figures of pragmatic accounts of explanation. And those books are very good and, and very readable. Um, and according to them, <clears throat> um, explanations are answers to questions. Um, a, a difference between Van Frassen and Ackenstein is that Van Frassen takes them to be specifically answers to why questions, whereas Ackenstein includes other questions as long as they are what he calls content-giving questions. Um, so, he, so Ackenstein thinks that you can explain not just why something has happened, but you can explain what is happening. Right? So you can explain what is happening in the Hadron Collider. Um, I'm also going to think of explanations as answers to questions. Um, but in particular, uh, I'm going to think of them as answers to explanation demanding questions. So I'm also going to restrict the questions that I take to be relevant, but they're not going to be why questions and they're not going to be content-giving questions, although I'm aware I haven't explained to you what that means, but I haven't really got, got time to. Um, we, maybe we can talk about that in the Q&A. Um, so I'll clarify what, what e-questions are later. Okay. <clears throat> so I've already made this point, uh, actually. So um, the relationship between the communicative and the pragmatic. So one can have a pragmatic account without it being a, a communicative account. So you can think of explanations as answers to questions and think that what determines what question is being asked involves appeal to agents and contexts. So that makes it pragmatic, right? But you can abstract away the question once it's been determined from the act of asking a question. Right. Um, so what that would then mean is that you'd then have, um, you'd then have an ex 
an explanation, um, or you'd have a question and an answer to that question um, that can be abstracted away from any reference to context or the people involved, right? It's just that you need the, the context to determine which question is being asked. Um, okay, and this is actually, so three years after Van Frassen wrote his book, Ackenstein wrote his, and, and in it, he criticizes Van Frassen for, for doing just this, and he denies that Van Frassen's account is truly pragmatic. So I think Ackenstein has a point, but there's a huge amount to be rescued from Van Frassen's work, and I'm going to go through some of that now. <clears throat> so here's a quote from The Scientific Image. The description of some account as an explanation of a given fact or event is incomplete. It can only be an explanation with respect to a certain relevance relation and a certain contrast class. These are contextual factors in that they are determined neither by the totality of accepted scientific theories nor by the event or fact for which an explanation is requested. So I'm going to clarify contrast class and uh, relevance relation. So contrast class, the point that Van Frassen is making <clears throat> is that you don't explain why you get x. You explain why you get x instead of y, where y is relevantly related to x. So if you think about the question, why do birds fly south? You could be asking, why do birds fly south? Why do birds fly south? Why do birds fly south? Where those are three different questions, and what they mean is, why do birds, as opposed to other animals, fly south? Why do birds fly as opposed to walk or swim south? Why do birds fly south as opposed to north, east, or west? Right. So here's Van Frassen. He says, in general, the contrast is not explicitly described because in context, it is clear to all discussants what the intended alternatives are. And now onto the relevance relation. So this is a slightly trickier notion, but the relevance relation concerns the kind of explanation that's being requested by a question. <clears throat> so you could ask um, the question, why is there a stop sign at the end of that road? And this could be interpreted in at least two ways, almost certainly more. Um, but that's not to do with flagging up different contrast classes, as with the why do birds fly south. This is to do with just having different explanatory um, concerns. So what you could be asking, quite unlikely, uh, is please render causally intelligible the events leading up to the event, namely the event of there being a stop sign there. So if I say, so if I ask you why is there a stop sign at the end of the road, you might say, well, because uh, this, workman, this workman who I know quite well put it there, you know, um, he's a really nice guy. Um, or I could be asking, please explain the rationale for a stop sign being there, right? And so that would then be, so then a, a, an answer to that would be, well, because, you know, it's uh, visibility is really poor and the traffic in the main road is 
uh, is very fast. Okay. So the idea that you get from both of those, from both um, <coughs> um, contrast class and relevance relation, is that context influences the question that is asked. Right. So um, context, and in particular the explanatory concerns of the person asking the question, impact on the question being asked, impact on what question is being asked. Okay. And hence, what would count as an answer to that question? So we need to think about what would count as an answer to that question, and, what, and then what would count as a good answer to that question. So here's where I want to introduce my favorite, or my favored, rather, account of explanation <clears throat> that I call interrogative pragmatism. So interrogative pragmatism, I haven't fully fleshed it out to a point where somebody who specializes in philosophy of science um, would really be able to sink their teeth into it. Um, I think that would need a sort of a, a book length treatment. Um, but anyway, it goes beyond current pragmatic theories uh, in two ways. Firstly, it, it pays close attention to the meaning of questions. So one thing that's really striking about pragmatic theories is they say, they say, yeah, explanations are answers to questions, and the questions that you ask are um, influenced by, by context, and in particular, your explanatory concerns. Um, and then they don't, they don't, or they tend not to engage with philosophy of language, about, or semantics, about the, the meaning of questions. Right. So, um, so interrogative pragmatism pays close attention to the meaning of questions, and it also espouses a really thoroughgoing pragmatism about meaning. Um, so that's why it's called interrogative pragmatism. So whereas current pragmatists think that context impacts upon meaning, yielding a kind of context-free meaning. I want to reject the notion of context-free meaning full stop. Okay, and <clears throat> those two features kind of come together. They kind of pull in the same direction. So, um, first off, let's look at the meaning of questions. So, if, like most theorists, you think that the meaning of statements is roughly a function of what makes them true. So, snow is white means what it does, because it's true if and only if snow is white. Right? I mean, similarly, snow is red means what it does, uh, because it's true if and only if snow is red. Right? It just happens that snow isn't red, and so it's false. So, if you think that, then giving an account of the meaning of questions looks really tricky. Um, but if you think that snow is white, um, if you think that, that, the, that the primary, um, thing that has meaning is not the sort of set the sentence, snow is white, but more, uh, the utterance in a context of somebody saying snow is white, 
somebody asserting Snow is White and actually really meaning it and trying to inform you of a fact that you didn't know, for example. Um, then you, you would take that to be the expression of the informational state, what we might call the belief that Snow is White. And if you do that, then you can take the question, any question, for example, what color is snow, as the expression of an interrogative state that is concerned with the color of snow, right? It just so happens that we've got a neat little word for informational state, belief. We don't have a neat little word for an interrogative state that's equivalent to belief, but, um, but there's no reason to think that interrogative states aren't in some way just as primitive. Okay, <clears throat> so my favorite philosopher of language is, is uh, a guy called Robert Stornaker. Um, and, and he's one of the pioneers of, of possible world semantics. So he thinks that you can model the meaning of things in terms of sets of possible worlds. Um, I'm not going to go into that, but, um, but here's, here's what he says in a very kind of introductory um, part of a very complicated paper. Um, the reasons people talk to each other are, of course, varied and complex. In a simple exchange of information, people say things to get other people to come to know things that they didn't know before. They utter certain noises with the expectation that someone hearing them will thereby acquire certain particular information. Now, questions don't get others to know certain things. But what they do is they, they make certain features of the common ground salient. So when I ask you a question, I mean, there's a sense in which you learn something implicit. You learn something about me. You learn that I want to know something. But by asking a question, I'm not explicitly informing you of anything. But what I am doing is I'm saying, here's all of this stuff that we presuppose. We have a common worldview. And now here's this tiny little chunk of our common worldview that is particularly salient right now, and I don't know about that. Can you enlighten me? That's sort of what a question does. Okay, so here are some important consequences of interrogative pragmatism. Um, it makes no sense at all to speak of the explanation of a phenomenon. The best you can hope for is a good answer to a good question that pertains to a phenomenon of interest. And of course, what this means is that we need to make sure that we're asking the right questions and that we then answer those very questions and not other questions. Another um, consequence of this that's very different to consequences if you take a sort of uh, a very prevalent view in philosophy of science <clears throat> is that there's no reductive hierarchy of scientificness. So social psychology is neither more nor less scientific than single neuron electrophysiology. It has its own questions and its own ways of answering them, right? Which is not to say that anything goes, right? 
you can do social psychology really badly. Okay, and the way in which different, different disciplines can interact um, is that uh, answers to questions of one discipline can stimulate questions in another. But what you must, what, what has to be avoided, according to this view, is that you answer, you directly answer the questions of one discipline with your own discipline. So answering a psychological question with a neuroscientific answer, for example, would be problematic. Um, so so let's take, let's take the, the case of thought insertion, right? So um, if you if you tell someone about thought insertion, they go, God, that's amazing. Why would someone deny ownership of their thoughts? Right. And what they mean by that is, is on what grounds would somebody deny ownership of their thoughts? What must this person be experiencing to deny ownership of their thoughts? Right. And if you answer that question by saying, oh, well, actually, um, there's too much dopamine in this person's brain, right? Or, something like that, then, I mean, not only have I just given a, a, a very vague version of that kind of answer, but suppose I gave a really, really precise and correct answer. That wouldn't be an answer to that question, right? Because it's not dopamine that provides grounds for the subject to deny ownership of their thought, right? It's a particular experience. Okay, so in, in, in Van Frassen's um, terminology, I would, be, I would be missing the relevance relation. Okay, it would, be like, it would be like the case with the stop sign, where somebody wants to know the rationale for somebody having put the stop sign there, and instead I just give them a description of what happened up until the point of the stop sign being there. Okay, so explanation and explanatory power. <clears throat> so... What all accounts of explanation need to do is they need to give, they need to say what makes something an explanation as opposed to not an exp explanation. And they need to say what makes something a good explanation as opposed to a bad explanation, or at least what makes something a better or worse explanation. Um, so just to clarify, the, the phrase, an explanation of X, has a demanding reading and a relaxed reading. So by that I mean, um, sometimes, sometimes people say, uh, there must be an explanation for this, by which they mean, there must be a correct explanation for this. Right. Or, um, or, that's not an explanation of that, Well, when they, when they will sometimes mean um, the more demanding reading. So sometimes explanation is used to mean correct explanation but I'm going to be using the relaxed reading, where a bad explanation is still an explanation. <clears throat> okay. And, and often the question of what makes something an explanation and what makes something a good explanation are often treated quite differently in philosophy of science, but I, I, I think they're very closely, um, closely related. Um, so... What makes something an explanation? So just to go back to something I said a long time ago, um, an explanation is an answer to a question. 
But it's not just an answer to any old question. It's an answer to an explanation demanding question. But then what are those? Right? This is starting to look really quite, really quite circular. Right? An explanation is an answer to an explanation demanding question. So I think the best way to explain this is, um, is in terms of what, what you get from different kinds, of, different kinds of questions when they're successfully answered. So an explanation demanding question requests explanations, right? We know that much. And if successful, they yield understanding. Right, so if you, if, you, if you successfully answer my particular question, why do birds fly south, I've gained some understanding of why birds fly south. Whereas fact-demanding questions request facts, and if successful, they yield knowledge. Right. So what is the capital of France? How tall is Mont Blanc? What is the way to the station? Okay, so there's this important difference between understanding and knowledge. Um, but, and this is, this is kind of related to what I meant when I said that, that determining whether something is an explanation or not is related to determining whether something is a good explanation or a bad explanation. So, um, just to do an analogy between fact-demanding questions and explanation-demanding questions. <clears throat> if I answer um, to a, to a fact-demanding question um, that's, for example, what is the capital of France, and I say that Madrid is the capital of France, right? I've given an answer, right? Just not the correct answer, right? Whereas if I'd said 17 is the capital of France, then that's arguably not an answer at all, right? But what makes that an answer is that it would have provided knowledge had it been correct. Right. Whereas, so analogously, I can answer uh, an explanation demanding question with an answer that just happens to not be the correct one. Right. And that would be an explanation, but um, it would be an incorrect explanation. So, um, I was going to come up with a good example of this and put it in the slide show, but, but I ran out of time. But I've since thought of, of, of a good one, right? So, um, so with the, if you fire, is, is anyone here a, a physicist? No, okay, so I'm not going to embarrass myself too much. If you fire alpha particles at a, at a thin sheet of, is it aluminium? Anyway, a metal, right? They, some of, them, some of them bounce off, some of them go through, and you get a certain pattern of scattering, right? And um, there were two competing explanations of why, that, why you got that scattering. One was Rutherford's where you have this, um, the positively charged core of, of, uh, of an atom and the electrons that go around it. And the, the core is 
takes up a very small volume in comparison to, to the whole size of the atom. And then there was more, there was more of, a, um, of a sort of plum pudding model where you had a kind of sea of electrons and you had all of these positive, positively charged bits sort of scattered throughout the whole thing. Right. Now, <clears throat> the plum pudding explanation um, is an explanation. It's just an incorrect explanation. And if it had been correct, it would have provided us with understanding. Um, so, so understanding is doing a lot of work for me here. Um, so it's important to see what understanding is. Now, understanding obviously gets used in like a million different ways. Um, like, I understand you, or, you know, and even I understand you can, be, can mean a million different things. Um, but I think scientific understanding involves, <clears throat> or what's crucial about scientific understanding is that it, it involves not just an appreciation of how the world is, but how the world could and could not have been. Um, and in a sense, this sort of, um, this, is a kind of, this is a kind of deeper underlying point to, that, that explains why Van Frassen's intuition is on the money that you always need a contrast class, right? Because what, what an explanation does is that it gives you understanding and it gives you understanding by ruling out relevant alternatives. Right? So it doesn't just tell you how the world is, it tells you how you know it couldn't have been in relevant, in relevant alternative circumstances. And from this, <clears throat> you, can, um, you can derive um, an aspect of explanatory power. So what I mean by explanatory power is what makes an explanation good. But what makes an explanation good is not simply a matter of giving a correct answer to an explanation demanding question. Explanatory power is also generated by precision or, or fine, I was gonna put fine grainedness, but I think precision is a, is a better word. Um, so explanatory power is also generated by precision. And what I mean by, by precision is, um, or to make sense of what I mean by precision, it's useful to appeal to modal proximity. Um, and modal proximity sounds um, very, very technical, but, but it just means um, something like closeness in the space of possibilities. Um, so, what a question does, either a, either a fact-demanding question or an explanation-demanding question, what it does is that it points either yourself or an interlocutor in the direction of an open possibility. So, um, J.L. Austin, for example, famously um, distinguished two different kinds of questions, one where you're where you're genuinely ignorant of it, of, of, of the answer to the question, and one where you're testing someone else's knowledge and you know. 
and those are two very different kinds of speech act. Um, but, but in the usual case, when you're asking a question and you genuinely want to know, so when I say, what's the capital of France, uh, and, I, and I genuinely, for some reason, need to know that, <laughs> um, what I'm doing is I'm pointing in the direction of what to me is an open possibility, right? So I say, I say, I haven't yet established what the capital of France is. It could be, could be anything. Um, and then when you say the capital of France is Paris, and I believe you, I've ruled out all of the other possibilities, and I now know that the po that, that it's it's down to one, right? Um, so that's that's so that's what I mean by a, a, a question points you in the direction of an open possibility, <clears throat> and an answer goes some way towards closing that possibility, right? But the thing is, is that with a fact demanding question, it tends to go all the way. It closes that possibility down to one. Um, whereas uh, an explanation demanding question is, is far more informationally demanding. And what you can do is you can, go, you can go some way to explaining to me why the world is the way that it is and not some other way. So explanatory precision. An answer to an E question does not close possibilities about what is the case, but rather about what could not have been the case, right? Because when I'm asking a question, when I'm asking an explanation demanding question, um, the thing to be explained is already part of our common ground. So when I say, um, why is this person hearing a voice, right? Um, that this person is hearing a voice is our common ground. It's, it's a presupposition, it's a prerequisite of me even asking the explanation demanding question. Okay. Um, and in a sense, what I'm asking you to do is to enlighten me about why, given the way things are the way they are, he wouldn't be hearing a voice in the way that he is. Right. <clears throat> so this, is, this gets quite complicated, but I'll, I'll use examples from voice hearing to clarify when something has got more explanatory power. Okay, so if the possibility closed about what could not have been the case, given the circumstances, are closer to what is the case than the possibilities closed by another answer, then that answer is more precise. And other things being equal, it has more power. Okay, so I understand that that is a, ma that is a mouthful, and, and I've even tied my own brain in knots, but, but if, I give an ex if I give examples, then, then that will become clearer. Okay. But the other things being equal is really important. So, so precision is generally a good thing. Um, but precision, obviously precision shouldn't outrun um, the, uh, the um, explanatory concerns of 
the person who's asked for the explanation. But then again, it wouldn't anyway if, um, if, you're, answering that, if, if, you're, if you're answering the question that they have asked. Um, but there's a trade-off between precision and scope um, where, um, where by scope I mean um, basically how much of the universe your explanation is supposed to uh, refer to or be relevant to, right? So, um, so Newton's laws um, can be used to come up with explanations that have huge scope, right? Whereas um, explanations about why a particular voice hearer is hearing the voice that they're hearing and not some other voice has got quite narrow scope. <clears throat> okay. Um, so, so now I'm gonna use some illustrations from voice hearing. <clears throat> okay. So, the question that we decide to ask ourselves when we're, when we're explaining something uh, or we're trying to explain something um, picks out a particular phenomenon of interest. Um, so in the case of voice hearing, it could be a given voice hearer, a particular individual, or it could be uh, a subspecies of voice hearing if we've, um, if we've um, isolated a subspecies of voice hearing a subtype of voice hearing. Um, or it could be voice hearing generally. Right. I'm not I'm, these aren't meant to be three exhaustive levels at which you could do this, obviously. You could, uh, just three examples. Um, so, so one question you could ask is, um, why does voice hearing occur as opposed to not occur? <clears throat> and here are two potential explanations. Uh, I'm not saying that either of these is, is uh, more correct than the other, but I think, uh, but what I'm trying to say is that one of them has got more explanatory power than the other. And, uh, and Pete will definitely recognize um, the options on offer because um, this is basically uh, Cho and Wu and then our response to Cho and Wu. Um, <clears throat> okay, so, so one, one answer to this, why does voice hearing occur as opposed to not occur? And one, one answer to that could be, well, because there is spontaneous activation in auditory cortex. And another answer could be, because episodes of inner speech fail to be recognized as self-produced and hence are experienced as coming from the outside world. So regardless of whether either is correct, two has more explanatory power in virtue of its precision, right? Um, so not only does one not tell us what causes the spontaneous activation, right? That's, that's one problem with it, but that's not, that's, that's not the problem with precision. The, precision. the problem with precision is that even if it did, it would only tell us why someone is having an auditory experience as opposed to not having an auditory experience, right? And in a sense, so remember what I said about modal proximity, what it's ruling out for us, even if, if it's correct, and, the, and if all of the details of it, if all of the details are, are so totally fleshed out as to give us understanding 
then what it rules out for us is the, the possible world where this person isn't having an auditory experience versus where they are having an auditory experience, right? Whereas what answer two does, I mean, it has problems of its own, it at least has the merit of telling us why somebody would have a verbal auditory experience as opposed to a non-verbal auditory experience, right? So the two possibilities between which each of these is distinguishing are closer in the second case in this, with the second explanation than with the first explanation. So to all other things being equal has got more explanatory power. <clears throat> okay, so here are other relevant questions. Um, why is this voice experienced as coming from the outside world um, and not experienced as coming from inside the head? And there you might appeal, for example, to, um, to a model of a particular subtype. So, for example, um, the, the hypervigilance models that, that, that we've been looking at. Or why does this voice hearer hear insults as opposed to other speech acts? Right. So, again, the thing in parenthesis is always the, the contrast class. Okay, as opposed to other speech acts. So why do they hear insults as opposed to other speech acts? And there, it seems that the right level to address that would be the person's, um, the person's emotions. They might have certain, certain negative emotions as opposed to positive emotions. Um, why are some voice, hear voice hearing experiences experienced as coming from specific agents as opposed to being just free-floating voice sounds, right? And there you might appeal to um, our innate um, capacities for representing agents or our, or our innate tendencies to represent agents. Why does this voice hearer hear the voice of her stepfather as opposed to anyone else or as opposed to no one in particular? And there you might want to give a story about the role that that particular individual has played in the voice hearer's life, right? <clears throat> so, I mean, and obviously I don't mean this to be an exhaustive list. This was just completely um, meant to just be illustrative, basically. And um, yeah, that's me done. Thanks. <laughs>